0: Welcome to New Books in History, a new book called The Strange Careers of the Jim Crow North, Segregation and Struggle Outside of the South, looks at the history of institutionalized racism in New York City and many other regions of the United States. The book is just out from NYU Press, and I'll be speaking today with its co-editor, Brooklyn College Professor Jean Theo Harris. My name is Beth Harpaz. I'm the editor of the website SUM, sum sum.cuny.edu which showcases work by faculty from the City University of New York like this book. This podcast with Professor Theo Harris about the strange careers of the Jim Crow North is hosted by the Gotham Center for New York City History and New Books Network. Hello, Professor Theo Harris, and thanks for talking to me today about the book.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: First off, tell me about the title. Uh, For folks who might not be familiar with the reference that phrase "strange careers" of the Jim Crow North is a bit puzzling. So, tell tell us what that what that means. What does it refer to?
1: So, it's a riff on um, a, a very seminal book on kind of Jim Crow, which was C. Van uh "The Strange Career of Jim Crow." Uh, and part of Woodward's contribution was to show that Southern segregation was not did not exist forever, right, that it's born in a particular moment of particular political, social, and economic decisions and realities. And part of Woodward's ultimate sort of uh, goal, if you will, uh, was to show that if it's born in a particular moment for particular reasons, it can also be dismantled. Um, So it was a very important work that traced the history of Southern Jim Crow. Um, emerging uh, in the second half of the 19th century. Um, And Woodward's book took on kind of a life of its own in terms of kind of the American consciousness and how we think about segregation and where it is. Even though the scholar himself took pains to say this is not to say it's not in the North. But his research focused on the South, which is why the book was on the South. Uh, and he, particularly in subsequent editions, highlighted the institutional segregation in the North. But so we named our book The Strange Careers of the Jim Crow North, partly because of the importance of that book and partly to, to kind of startle people. Um, and we also made the title Plural Careers, partly to emphasize the ways that institutional segregation develops in multiple ways, in multiple places. It's not the same. We're not saying it's the same, it happens the same in Jackson, Mississippi, as it is in New York City. We're also saying it's not the same in New York City as in Rochester. Um, and so that's why we make careers plural.
0: Okay. Um, now, the, the introduction to the book, which you wrote with your co-author, uh, Brian Purnell, who I, I believe is a professor at Bowdoin up in Maine, right? Exactly. Um, the, the introduction gives a terrific overview of how racist codes have been institutionalized in the U.S., really going back to the country's colonial era. I wondered if you would give us some examples uh, of that in, in New York City. Uh, uh, let, let's, start, let's start there.
1: Uh, Okay, I mean, first, one of the central arguments in the introduction is even though we tend to date Jim Crow to the aftermath of Reconstruction in the South, when you turn your gaze northward, you're forced to see that it begins much earlier. It begins much earlier um, in terms of laws that restrict voting, like in New York, or that restrict jury service, or that segregates schools. Um, and indeed, one of the precedents for school segregation comes from Boston, comes from a case um, of, a young, of a girl in Boston. So part of what we're trying to do in the introduction is to show that in places like New York City, in places like Boston, you see the emergence of legalized segregation before the Civil War. And in many ways, the North leads on this, these questions. Uh, And so it's uh, uh, part of what we're trying to do is change the timeline of how we understand when institutionalized segregation kind of comes about. And part of what we're showing is you start to see um, the abolition, and in a place like New York City, the very gradual abolition, and in New York State as well, the gradual abolition of slavery in the post-Revolutionary War period, at the same time in those decades, When your state is abolishing slavery, you see the rise of various kinds of laws and regulations constricting black voting, uh, black living, uh, things of this nature. And so we're trying to change the periodization of how we see segregation um, and expand where we see it as well.
0: I think one of the things that I found very interesting is, you know, when we talk about the history of of slavery in the United States, uh, you know, we we talk about how it was uh, abolished in, you know, the northern uh, half of of the of the country, uh, you know, and it was it remained legal in in the South, and yet, you know, what you kind of show us here with these various. Uh, codes uh, in, in New York City regarding voting and, and other uh, things, you know, that we consider mm-hmm. rights, um, is that, in in fact, you know, African Americans were not in any way considered equal. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that, you know, that I think that kind of gives us a new way of looking at, at, at this history.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So you have in New York the restriction of voting in 1827, and you have... You also have cultural entertainments like minstrelsy. Minstrelsy really develops in the North, um, and it develops in the North in this period, you know, 1820s, 1830s, 1840s. Um, you have the use of the, the N-word. You, you know, all of these things that, again, we associate in some sense um, with Southern racism have Northern roots as well
0: another aspect of, of your overview in the introduction is a look at white resistance to integration. I, I think in the Trump era, a lot of people have been shocked by overt displays of racism, uh, overt expressions of white supremacy. But you've got so many examples in there of white communities that reacted violently, you know, riots and everything else, at the specter of school integration and other policies. Uh, I I wondered if you would give us some examples of those, you know, from the 20th century.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, I mean, I think we're doing a couple things. We're, we're both expanding what white resistance looks like, right? So it's not all sort of spitting and burning crosses and violent. Uh, so that's one of the first points we're making, that if we're going to look at white resistance to movements for desegregation and racial justice— they take many forms. Uh, so in New York City, it's going to take the form uh, in the decade after Brown of an organized white movement to prevent desegregation in the city. Um, and, and the group calls itself Parents and Taxpayers, right? It's asserting its, its rights as parents and taxpayers, obviously implicitly saying blacks and Latinos in the city are, are not parents, not taxpayers, even though that's not true. Um they use a variety of different methods. They use uh, marching as well. They use pressuring their political uh, officials and leaders. Uh, they do so so effectively that a loophole is put into the Civil Rights Act. Uh, the Civil Rights Act northern sponsors see how much their white constituents at home don't want school desegregation coming to their schools, in part because of this organized movement in New York City, opposed to school desegregation. The Civil Rights Act is going to tie federal funding for schools to school desegregation, and again, these Northerners, like Brooklyn Congressman Emanuel Seller, don't want that coming home to their schools and their constituents. So they put a loophole in basically saying desegregation shall not mean the assignment of students to correct racial imbalance. Now, racial imbalance is the word that Northern like to use to describe what's what their schools are like. They're racially imbalanced. Uh, there's a long-standing movement in New York City against school desegregation, um, and it is a movement that finds some sympathy from mainstream news organizations like the New York Times. Uh, the New York Times is very critical of. There's also a very, very I should say, a very robust movement for school desegregation in New York City in the decade after Brown. Black New Yorkers, like Black Mississippians, like Black Arcan- uh, people from Arkansas, <laughs> are, you know, rejoice with the Brown decision. See, see this as finally there will be change in schools here in the city, uh, and the Board of Ed and white parents uh, don't necessarily agree with that, um, and so you have this growing, robust movement for school desegregation by black parents, by Puerto Rican parents, by civil rights leaders in the city. The largest civil rights demonstration of the 1960s happens in New York City. Um, it's not the March on Washington in Washington, D.C. in August of 1963. It's the February 3rd, 1964 school boycott where nearly a half a million students and teachers stay out of school because we're a decade after Brown and there's no comprehensive desegregation plan in New York City. But to go back to my point about kind of the media, the New York Times reacts very strongly against the school boycott. They editorialize against it before in the days leading up to it. They call it reckless. They call it unreasonable. They call it violent. Uh, even afterwards, they're still critical. Uh, so I think I think part of what the book also is doing is complicating how we think about northern liberalism. Right. Uh, so the New York Times by 62, 63, 64 is very rigorously covering sort of southern struggles. Uh, but if you look on their pages, the way they're covering the movement in Alabama is very different than the way they're covering the movement at home
0: and and i wanted to point out that uh one of the chapters of the book is actually devoted to uh the uh, a couple of black intellectuals who led the fight in the 1950s and 60s in New York City against segregation and unequal funding in New York's k-12 public school system that chapter is written by Professor Christopher Brian Burrell who teaches at Ostos Community College in the Bronx and that's part of the city University system um and it's you know it's a really interesting uh history uh, of that movement that you refer to, uh, and you know, and and as as any New Yorker knows, we are still living with uh, a segregated public school system. You can walk into uh, elementary schools and uh, upper schools in many neighborhoods in this city, and in a black neighborhood because our housing is also segregated. You will. Barely find a white face in there. And you can go to, you know, schools in middle class and, and kind of affluent white neighborhoods uh, in the city, uh, you know, like Park Slope or, you know, some parts of the Upper West Side. And there might be, you know, one or two uh, non white faces in each class, but it's, those are largely the province of, 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 uh, white students as well. Our mayor, Bill de Blasio, is, um, you know, various remedies are being considered. A few districts are trying to come up with something innovative. But it has proven to be an intractable problem in many cities, even where there is now at least some uh, sense that this is not okay and we've got to fix it. Um, I was just reading about San Francisco's efforts to integrate their public schools, which have also not been successful. So we're still living with that you know, what is it, uh, however many years, decades after Brown versus versus the Board of Ed, uh, you know, ordered, basically said segregation is illegal, and the South had to wrangle with that immediately. But as you say, it was a problem in the North too, and Northern liberals chose to kind of put their nose in the air and say, well, it doesn't really, it doesn't really you know, it's not really about us, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, yeah, no. I mean, and I think... I think there's this constant deflection, and this is one of the things we talk about in the book, that one of the key ways Northerners, um, Northerners are very invested in not being the South, and, they're con- and they constantly greet movements in the North with like, well, this isn't the South, prove it. We don't have problems here, prove it, right? So you see black activists get mired in commissions and studies trying to prove what is evident to the eye, which is things like schools are not just segregated, but... Deeply unequal. Um, Northerners tend to justify their segregation also, also through cultural arguments. So it's um, school inequality derives from different values and behaviors, and black and Latino families it is claimed don't value education in the same way. But you see this these kinds of rationales. Um, in cities like New York or Boston or Detroit or Chicago. And so you see all sorts of money being thrown at programs for cultural remediation or juvenile delinquency. Uh, And these become more palatable ways to talk about and to justify segregation. Uh, Similarly, Northerners like to talk about their opposition to desegregation as being for neighborhood schools and against busing. Um, And this seems on the surface to be different, right? except that you don't hear northerners talking about neighborhood schools until after Brown, and you don't see northern white parents objecting to busing, because most kids are being bused long before busing is used for desegregation, Um, either for, for segregation, right? Many kids are being bused in the 50s and 60s to maintain segregated schools, Or they're being bused for other kinds of educational reasons, bigger high schools, and you don't see white parents objecting. Um, Civil rights leaders Julian Mann will say, it's not the bus, it's us, right? But but this language of anti-busing becomes an effective screen to distinguish what New York City parents or Boston parents are doing from what Jackson, Mississippi parents are doing or Birmingham, Alabama parents are doing. Right. Uh, and 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 historians have repeated it, and journalists have repeated it, and so we somehow see kind of opposition to the civil rights movement, and we think about the South, and we don't think about the North.
0: Um, now, uh, another aspect of of the book and something that you cover in your introduction that I want to. Uh, kind of transition to is, I I think a lot of people out there do understand at this point that there have been, historically, there have been government and business policies all over the country that created divisions by race, economic divisions, neighborhood divisions, things like redlining, uh, the inability of African-Americans to get mortgages to buy houses in a country where owning real estate is often the key to creating family wealth across generations. But your introduction has many examples of other programs that had built in racialized provisions that Created institutional disadvantages for African Americans, and I want to talk a little bit about that, and maybe start with the New Deal. Uh, you know, FDR's program during the Great Depression, which did lift millions of people out of poverty, created jobs, provided government handouts, uh, and and many programs that that still exist today, like Social Security. Um, but in your introduction, you note that, um, or you, I, I believe you. Kind of quoting uh, some of the people who've really studied this and criticized uh, the New Deal and how it came about um, as essentially affirmative action programs for white people, creating a vast white middle class and keeping Black Americans in poverty. And I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about that because that that came as a surprise to me. And I'll tell you, part of why it came as a surprise to me is. In New York City, in Harlem, uh, there's some beautiful artworks. There's some historic sites that, you know, that note that black artists and poets and writers uh, were employed by, by programs for artists and writers during the New Deal. So we know that culturally at least there were some, uh, uh, you know, African-Americans who were who did benefit from this and created lasting works of art in particular. Uh, so when I saw, you know, the New Deal, affirmative action for whites, it took me a while to kind of wrap my head around it. So I wondered if you could talk a little about that. Sure.
1: So the term redlining actually comes from um, a a kind of practice by the Homeowners Loan Corporation, the or HOLC. The HOLC gets started during the New Deal as a way to help keep Americans in homes and to help facilitate more home ownership among Americans. Right? Roosevelt Roosevelt's administration sees home ownership as key to kind of lifting America out of the Great Depression. And so what the HOLC does is it basically goes around and it creates these what are called residential security maps of about 300 cities across the country. Uh, And they rate neighborhoods and portions of neighborhoods, bits of neighborhoods, on a scale of A to D, and they color code those ratings. So A ratings get green and all the way down to D ratings are, are red on these maps. And why they're making these maps is what they want is for banks to invest more and give more loans to more Americans to buy homes. This is the period where the way that Americans buy homes changes to what we kind of understand it today. Before the New Deal, typically you had to put at least 50% down, and the loans that you could get to buy a home were much shorter, right? Seven years, ten years. What the government's trying to encourage through the HOLC and through rating all these neighborhoods is to get banks to be willing to make longer-term loans, like amortized loans, like we understand today, thirty years, twenty-five years, and let people put less down, like twenty percent down. And so they say, okay, we're going to tell you the places where it's safe to make loans. Uh, And so the HOLC again rates about does this in about three hundred cities across the United States. Um, And so they're looking at sort of housing quality, but that's not the only thing that contributes to these ratings. Uh, They put a huge premium on racial homogeneity. So neighborhoods need to be all white. And um, if neighborhoods are not all white or what they call, you know, kind of they use words like infiltration, those neighborhoods get C or D ratings. Similarly, they are looking for neighborhoods that there's still room for development, which means part of of this is a New Deal venture is they want neighborhoods where there's still room for both housing and commercial development. So to give you an example from New York City, the only neighborhood in Brooklyn that the HOLC gives an A rating to is a little sliver of Bay Ridge on the water. And that's because the housing is beautiful, it's all white, but they still see Bay Ridge having room for development. They don't give Brooklyn Heights, which is similarly beautiful housing, all white, they don't give, Brooklyn Heights gets a B rating because they they see it being fully developed. This is why you're going to see in the post-war period this tremendous explosion of suburbs and and the access that many, many white people then have to loans. To buy houses in the suburbs, and there's nothing personal or accidental about that, right? If we understand that they're putting a premium on neighborhoods where there's room for development, by and large, those places are are suburban places. So it'll be much easier in the postwar period for a white family to get a loan in Westchester or Nassau than in you know, and then in Brooklyn, even if they're living in Brooklyn. Um, So that's one way the New Deal has a catastrophic effect because you have these ratings, right? They rate all these neighborhoods. So it means that neighborhoods like central Brooklyn, um, bedford stuyvesant Crown Heights, East New York, get C&D ratings. It means that banks don't invest in those neighborhoods. It means that it, in fact, creates the phenomenon of these neighborhoods then decline. It becomes much harder, as you noted to to get a loan. Uh, So it has this tremendous effect combined with the GI Bill, right? Because the GI Bill then makes low-interest loans available to vets. And it does so nominally in a universal way, except if there's no anti-discrimination provision in the GI Bill. So you have to have somebody willing to sell you a home and a bank willing to lend you money. And so... Most Black and Latino GIs find it find tremendous difficulty being able to access their GI Bill benefits. So that's kept. So what you see in the post World War II period is this widening gap, right? Um, white families owning homes for the first time. Also, white men, many many more white men going to college, right, with their GI Bill benefits. Similarly, with the GI Bill benefits. You have to have a school willing to admit you, and so many schools were segregated or nearly segregated, and so there, again, it, black and Latino GI some are able to utilize their GI Bill benefits in the in the '40s and '50s, but many, many were not because there were not seats open in colleges like to to black and Latino GI uh, uh, people. So that's catastrophic, right? Because you can see how, using their GI Bill benefits, white people, many, many more white people, become middle class. Uh, so this is what we're when we use that phrase on affirmative action was white. We're taking it from Ibram and Nelson's very important book. And part of what Kess Nelson is showing in that book is the ways that the GI Bill, for instance, allows a much, much larger group of white people access to the middle class through uh, access to higher education and to homes. And so it actually widens the gap between whites and, and African-Americans.
0: Um, there
1: are other aspects of the New Deal we could talk about. We could talk about things like Social
0: Security. Yeah, let's let's, let's just briefly, I want to move on to the CUNY chapter because that's totally fascinating, but I, I was very struck by the, uh, the provision in Social Security, which you uh, you know you you again mention in the in the introduction um because it was something and I feel really ignorant that I that I was unaware of this that social security was crafted uh you know there had to be consensus uh in the Senate in order to get these provisions through and they specifically left out domestic workers and agricultural workers from coverage uh, of social security um, as a way of
1: and unionization right so for decades um, so when Cesar Chavez is organizing the farm workers one of the first barriers to that is that agricultural cultural workers aren't covered um, under the provisions of the new deal that 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 make it a right to, for many Americans to join a union and not to be punished for doing this so But, again, there's a carve-out for agricultural workers. There's a carve-out for domestic workers. This is true of minimum wage. This is true of Social Security. Um, So that's devastating. And they're trying to keep a low-wage kind of labor available in both of these industries, if you will. Um, And then on top of that, right, the other thing that comes in through the Social Security Act is what we know today as welfare, right, aid to dependent children. And similarly with aid to dependent children, they put in a provision... That says that allows caseworkers to determine if children are living in quote suitable homes. And if you're not living in a suitable home, you're then not, um, then the caseworker can say you're not eligible. And what that means in the first decades of welfare is that that black women, um, uh, Puerto Rican women, Chicano women had very much difficulty accessing it. So largely in the first decades of welfare, welfare is a program for white women
0: and their children. Wow. Um, yeah, th- that's...
1: Yeah, so in some sense, the New Deal is tremendously transformative. It, it changes kind of U.S. citizenship, and in other ways, it it reifies and in many ways expands kind of uh, racial inequality uh, through many of the assumptions that are built into these programs.
0: Yeah, and again, you know, we're almost 100 years, I mean, what are we, like 90 years from you know, the, the, the start of the Great Depression and the impl- implementation of many of these programs. And again, we are we we are still living with uh the legacy of the gaps that these benefits created uh where they did allow millions of white families to move into out of poverty and into the middle class and not so much for black families. All right I want to I want to move on because I I the chapter by uh Tahir Butt, who is a doctoral candidate at the CUNY Graduate Center, uh looks at a really um, important chapter in the history of the City University of New York. The chapter is called, You Are Running a De-Facto Segregated University. That's a quote from a politician at the time, actually a Republican lawmaker from Long Island. Um, The chapter shows how uh, public pressure, student strikes, and protests in 1969 forced CUNY to implement open admissions. And I wonder if you just tell us a little bit about that story. Um, we're actually marking the anniversary that, uh, this year. The uh, Let's see, is it the 50th anniversary? Yeah, it's the 50th anniversary of the 1969 protest. Uh, There's a very famous photograph. I have a copy of it in my office on my wall. Uh, students carrying a flag at uh, City College, which is up in, in Harlem. Beautiful campus. Um, and uh, just very much of the time. So tell us a little bit about that story. So part of what um,
1: to hear about the chapter does is it takes, it, it, it shows us the decades before 69 and both how segregated CUNY was, um, how, I think many of us look back to the days of free tuition, right, longingly. Um, here was CUNY making good New York making good on kind of social democracy. And I think what he finds is that in fact this existed alongside a nearly segregated university system that people were aware of at the time and yet people defended CUNY as it was. So you would see people saying look it's segregated and then other people who were defending free tuition not responding by saying, yes, we can do better. Like, yes, we need to change. But in fact, it's, it's a meritocratic university. It's good the way it is. And one of the huge things that he finds that I had no idea about, um, so up to 1960, in fact, community college students paid tuition. And even after 1960, students who are going at night, who are not fully matriculated students, are, are are paying tuition. So in fact, part of the growth of the city university in the two decades after World War II is being facilitated, not just by the state, but by tuition. And by tuition that, and when you look, and what he finds is when you look at who's going, to, like, who are the non-matriculated students, you see much larger numbers of students of color. So, in fact, sort of black and Latino students are subsidizing sort of um, CUNY students in two ways. First, taxpayers across the city and across the state, right, are making free CUNY possible, right? So that includes black and Latino families in the city. And then in a second way, you have, um, I mean, by and large... City College, Brooklyn College, Hunter College. They are they have, you know, they're 2%, 3% sort of black and Latino in this period. Um, but in the non-matriculated, uh, like, evening classes, you have much larger numbers of people going. So, in fact, and they're paying tuition. And so they're further subsidizing kind of free tuition for white, largely white students. Um, and he starts with this very kind of in many ways, surprising image, which is that Dr. King is invited in 1963 to give the commencement speech at City College. And on the face of that, that seems to embody, right, the progressivism of New York, the progressivism of, of CUNY, right? They've, he's fresh from Birmingham. He's fresh from the violence of the South. Here he's come. Welcome to New York. But... What the chapter shows is, like, if you actually zero in, what you have is, you know, only a couple dozen black students graduating that day. So it's a, a nearly segregated crowd that day. Dr. King is speaking to 15,000 people in Harlem, and it's blindingly white. And CUNY has no shame about that, right? And this is one of the things that, that the chapter's grappling with, is that here he's welcome to Harlem, to, to City College, to essentially a city college that is largely segregated, right, that sits in the heart of Harlem, and yet almost no, you know, very, very few of Harlem's young people are getting to attend city college. Um, And so he kind of starts there to kind of look at this kind of paradox between kind of the promise of CUNY and then what CUNY actually looked like. Um, And so he's kind of taking us... he's so this is, in some sense, a prehistory to what happens in 1969, um, and it's really, I think, showing both how segregated CUNY was, but also that people are talking about that. It's not like it's not talked about, and it's not people aren't organizing against it, and still, kind of, CUNY maintains itself in a, a largely segregated way. Now, this is not segregation like the University of Alabama, that no black students are coming. Obviously, there's small numbers of black students at all of these colleges. um, But it's just completely disproportionate to what the city's high schools look like at that point. And yet, CUNY is justifying it by saying, if there's a problem, it's a problem in the high schools. We're not responsible. This is total meritocracy. There's, all again, all of this language to kind of obfuscate the problem.
0: And one of the things that uh that uh Tahir but, uh shows is that black students being segregated in uh, neighborhoods where, you know, their schools were largely African-American, the schools were overcrowded, they were underfunded. Uh, they did not have the preparation needed to qualify for, you know, the free tuition at the best senior colleges. So, uh, you know, again, and and again, we are still living that reality today, not so much at CUNY, which I think has done, you know, a remarkable job of diversifying. I mean, I think there's still work to be done and, and programs are being implemented and, and kind of revised all the time to try to address that. But, you know, we see it in our elite high schools, right, where Stuyvesant High School has this test and Hunter College High School, which actually is part of CUNY, has this test to get in. And, you know, only a, a couple, literally you could count them on one or two hands each year, uh black students um, pass that test because they come from schools that don't have, you know, enriched, they're not learning calculus in fifth grade the way a kid in, you know, a fancy white neighborhood is doing and their parents aren't paying for them to take the prep courses uh, after school because they can't afford it. Uh, So, you know, as I said, we continue to live with that reality uh, today. And and that's one of the, I I think the big takeaways of of the book is that these these institutionalized systems, which began, you know, whether it was in the 1700s, 1800s or 1900s, 20th century, we're still living with uh, with that today, and that I think is you know, a huge wake-up call from, from your book, how, the, how this all is rooted in policies that are decades, uh, sometimes even centuries old. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, any other quick highlight that you might want to mention before we sign off, maybe from another part of the country or some other aspect that you think is important that you want people to think about?
1: Um, so a number of the chapters look at law enforcement. Um, there's one chapter that looks that's looking at policing in New York City um, in the 30s and 40s. Uh, there's um, there's a chapter that's looking at the kind of organizing in San Francisco and and kind of unaddressed grievances in San Francisco around police brutality that that um, around segregation that go unaddressed and and lead in many ways to an uprising in San Francisco in 1966. Um, And then there's a really interesting chapter on the role of judges in kind of um, injustice in the criminal justice system and the ways that judges uh, abandon their um, independence and autonomy and often work sort of hand-in-glove with prosecutors and and police and go along with prosecutors and police. Um, And so there's a chapter in the book that's looking at a judge in Detroit, George Crockett, who steps out from that and how um, even though this is what judges are supposed to do to be independent of the police and prosecutors and to provide a check on everyone, um, the chapter looks at what happens when George Crockett, in fact, acts independently of police and prosecutors both during the 1967 uprising in Detroit and then during uh, the mass arrest of a black radical uh, families who had attended a Republic of New Africa meeting in 1969 and then were mass arrested. And Crockett basically forces the police to, to let many of them go. Uh, and there's a huge uproar against him. So that chapter really looks at the role that judges play. Um, so a number of the chapters are taking up kind of the long history of organizing around police brutality, around injustices in the criminal justice system. Um,
0: And and one of the points that you make in the introduction is that a lot of the recent incidents in the 21st century in which people of color have died in interactions with the police, unarmed people of color, have been outside the South. A lot of the Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, uh, protests, et cetera, have uh, looked at incidents in California, Minnesota, Ohio, uh, you know, this is not. Alabama Mississippi this is everywhere and that's i think that's you know that's the big message of the book right Jim Crow North we're not we're we're saying this has happened this is a nationwide institutionalized uh, problem, and and we need to kind of recognize that in order to move on. All right, we have been talking to Jean Theo Harris, a professor at Brooklyn College, which is part of the City University of New York about a new book she co-edited called The Strange Careers of the Jim Crow North. Thank you so much, Professor the- Theo Harris. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm Beth Harpaz, the editor of the CUNY website, sum.cuny.edu, signing off for the Gotham Center for New York City History and New Books Network.